This is a piece of history that we don't often hear about because the clock often starts running in 1948 when Zionist gangs following the killing of thousands of Palestinians, the destruction of over 500 villages, the uprooting of 80% of the Palestinian population, declare themselves to be the state of Israel on our land. But it's super illegal. It violates numerous treaties. You know how the U.S. government is. International law, schminner, schmashinal, schma. <laughs> right. The whole thing is based on a fiction. Next time anybody tells you God gave Jews the land of Israel, ask them what year and who accepted. I'm trying to check the paperwork. When did God get into the real estate game? What year? Let me know. Get back to me. Yeah. I haven't heard. But that's actually funny and true. That's my America, brand of comedy. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of spreading awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You may know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's going on, folks? My name is Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and Mikey Intifada if you're a member of the Zionist AstroTurf Keyboard Army. <laughs> this is good. Are you eventually going to run out of those, do you think? No, I'm going to have to write a new joke every week. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe. If you hang out with us on YouTube, if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review if you can. Apple lets you leave a review and a few others do as well. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, please reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you guys. Also, shout out to our listeners in Bahrain. We were number Ouch. three last week. Number three in political podcasts in Bahrain. Thank you so much for listening and sharing. We didn't even know anybody was listening in Bahrain, but we are so happy to have you. Shouts out. I feel like we need to provide a little bit of an update on what's going on uh, in terms of U.S. policy on Palestine. Sure. So two episodes ago, we talked about Biden's first two months and we commented how he has essentially reversed not one single Trump era decision on Palestine that had the effect of severely undermining Palestinian rights, further entrenching Israeli theft of Palestinian land, of course, in violation of international law, and also serving as a straight up attack on the rule of law, like when the US imposed sanctions on the International Criminal Court and its chief prosecutor. So we talked about this a couple of episodes ago. And since the airing of that episode, we do have some new developments that we have to report on. There were two main developments in terms of U.S. policy with respect to Palestine. So on April 20, no, not 22nd, April 2nd. Here we go. Reporting so from on... the future. <laughs> 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 Although their, their moves are so predictable, we could easily it's report totally from the future. True. They're going to continue 100%. to give Israel money. Right. So on April 2nd, 2021, the Biden administration revoked the executive order ending the threat and imposition of economic sanctions and visa restrictions on the International Criminal Court and its chief prosecutor. So basically, the sanctions that were imposed by the Trump administration on the ICC 
and its chief prosecutor for the ICC's decision to investigate Israeli war crimes now have been revoked by the Biden administration. And what is that? Several mean? months. Yeah, exactly. So several months into his presidency, you know, so he didn't do it in a hurry. He took his sweet time. But I think you drop bombs on Syria first, <laughs> right? You right. got to have your priorities in order. The military um, eats first. Exactly. But you're absolutely right, Michael, to ask this question of what does this mean exactly? And you know, our old pal, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, he actually told us what it exactly means in the press release that announced that the U.S. was going to be ending these sanctions on the ICC. And if you pay close attention, the U.S. says very clearly in the press release that it did not end these sanctions because it wanted the court to do its job, but it essentially was saying that it ended these sanctions because it decided that there were other ways that it could achieve the outcome that it was trying to achieve with the sanctions. So it would rely on those ways and not sanctions, right? So if Meaning we look- they could kill the process bureaucratically. Exactly. They don't need so sanctions. Sanctions are a little too loud. Sanctions are the ambulance in your background. <laughs> exactly. A little too loud. We can, we're picking it up on the mic, even though it's outside. A little bit. Everybody's <laughs> sensitive to it. We can hear it. So if we look at the press release where Blinken, the Secretary of State, announces that the sanctions on the ICC are going to be lifted, he also says, quote, we continue to disagree strongly with the ICC's actions relating to the Afghanistan and Palestine situations. We maintain our longstanding objection to the court's efforts to assert jurisdiction over personnel of non-state parties, such as the US and Israel. We believe, however, that our concerns about these cases would be better addressed through engagement with all stakeholders in the ICC process rather than through the imposition of sanctions, end quote. Yeah, they're going to kill it in a back room somewhere. They want to <laughs> exactly. take it into a smoky room, show it footage of 9-11 that nobody's ever seen. Just be like, that's, where, that's what's happening. You're absolutely right, Michael. The U.S. is basically saying, look, we don't need sanctions. We can do this. We can achieve the outcome that we're trying to achieve in another way, right? There have already been rumors circulating in the Israeli press that the U.S.'s plan is going to be to pressure the next prosecutor who will take over after Fatou Bensouda, British barrister Kareem Khan, who will join the court in June to essentially drop the case altogether. You can see reference to this in the Israeli media, which tends to be sometimes a little bit more truthful than the mainstream U.S. media on the same subject, which is a strange like anomaly and uh, sort of phenomenon that we see, but I've seen it more on more than one occasion. What are you saying, that the Israeli press is better at covering Israel's news than the U.S.? Kind of. Yeah, that's because everybody in the United States is scared to write about Israel or they'll be called an anti-Semite. Yeah. They take press releases given to them by intelligence agencies in Israel and they print them as fact. Yeah. But if you really want to find out what's going on, you know, you can head over to the Haaretz or the, you know, even the Jerusalem Post or the Times of Israel. And every once in a while, they'll let something slip and you'll go, wow, really? Okay. 
that's so that's what you guys were doing and meanwhile the new york times will be reporting the very same thing but it will be you know completely different right you'll find you will often find out information that doesn't even make it to the us news but that is very revealing of israel's intent its aspirations its reasoning its policy whatever it may be so Never forget that they published testimony from people who participated in the Deir Yassin massacre in Haaretz. Yeah, exactly. That would never make it to a mainstream U.S. publication. What else happened? The U.S. also announced in these last couple of weeks that it would resume funding to UNRWA after Trump cut all U.S. funding to UNRWA. So UNRWA, for those of you who don't know, is the UN agency that is charged with providing services to some Palestinian refugees. I say some because only about four or five million or so Palestinian refugees are actually serviced by UNRWA, whereas we are a total of 8 million Palestinian refugees worldwide out of a population of 13 million globally. So while UNRWA does provide services to some Palestinians, certainly not all Palestinian refugees are receiving services from UNRWA. And even those that are receiving services from UNRWA are definitely not receiving all of the services that they might need, having been refugees now for three generations, living in camps that were initially constructed for temporary use, but having had to survive in them now for multiple generations. So, okay, great. They've resumed funding. I think the refugees that do rely on that funding to survive are going to find it helpful. But I think we need to never lose sight of the big picture, right? Which is ultimately that UNRWA needs to not even exist because there shouldn't be a Palestinian refugee problem to begin with because Palestinians should be allowed to return to the homes that they were kicked out of. I mean, that's, that's the real issue here. The real issue is not whether or not the U.S. is funding UNRWA. The, U, the real issue that we need to be questioning is why does UNRWA need to even exist at all? What are the conditions that required the creation of a special UN agency for Palestinian refugees? I mean, UNRWA is very unique in that there are no other UN agencies that are specifically set up to deal with a specific refugee population. That's how serious the Palestinian refugee population is. So we need to never lose sight of the bigger questions. When we read these articles that are sort of like completely being provided without any context. But you know what, Michael, what do you think is the first thing that Joe Biden said after he announced the decision to resume funding UNRWA? Ooh, something like I want to take a nap or what's for dinner. <laughs> no, like if, if you had to pick something related to Palestine. Probably something like, they still out there? <laughs> no. No, go back, think hard to a long history of Democratic presidents saying the same thing over and over and over. Uh, something about a two-state solution, probably. Bingo. Exactly. Yeah. The first thing he said after resuming funding to UNRWA was that the U.S. supports a two-state solution. Okay, fine. But what does this really mean? Let me translate this for you, Michael, because as it turns out, I happen to speak the language of Zionist Democratic U.S. presidents very fluently. Essentially, this means, Israel, you can do whatever you want. You can build all the illegal settlements you want. You can uproot Palestinians from all over the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the capital of the Palestinian state under the two-state solution, which we as the United States purport to support. But yeah, go ahead, kick them all out. 
take over all of East Jerusalem. Israel is doing that right now. They are uprooting Palestinians from their homes all over the West Bank, also primarily East Jerusalem. Their plan is very clear to ethnically cleanse all of Jerusalem so that they have all of it. And the US will continue to act like that one CD in your car from high school, remember, that was scratched and it would skip and sometimes it would get stuck and it would repeat the same bit over and over and over again. That's the US every time it says that it supports the two-state solution. Yeah. Can you imagine putting your head down for 80 years? Right? And just like kicking a can down the road for decades, saying right. the exact same thing, knowing full well what the reality on the ground is. Right. And that like the thing that you claim to support that you have never changed your position on, at least officially, it is by the minute becoming impossible. Actually, it's already impossible and it's been impossible. It's a, a fairy time. tale. It's always been a fairy tale. Just like the reason that they claim to be there is a fairy tale. The whole thing is based on a fiction. Next time anybody tells you online God gave Jews the land of Israel, ask them what year and who accepted. Because I would like yeah, to check. Right? I'm trying to check the paperwork. You feel me? Because it <laughs> seems they if right. they want white man paperwork, I want white man paperwork. You know what I mean? They've, they're right. giving out IDs. I'd like to see their paperwork on when they accepted the land. When did God get into the real estate game? What year? Let me know. Get back to me. Yeah. I haven't heard. When was the offer? When was the acceptance? Y'all closed? Did you... These are all things you need for a lawful contract, incidentally. You need offer, acceptance, and consideration. I went to law school. I know what hey, those three things are. You're the lawyer. You I'm know? just the Jew. You know what I mean? Who knows? <laughs> it's very obvious what we do need. We need more than the repetitive, insincere declarations that do not go beyond this one hopeless sentence of, we support the two-state solution. You know, we support the two-state solution. We support the two-state solution. Like I could be the public relations person for a democratic president, like easily, like anybody could, like a fourth grader could, like an, like an, like an AI bot could. All you would have to do is just tell it to repeat the same phrase over and over and over again and never stop. You could get an underachieving parrot to do that job. Literally. That's all you have to do. And you have just espoused the U.S. policy and, and, and the U.S. discourse that has frustrated this situation for, the, for decades, right? And, and what's frustrating is that headlines like this, headlines like, oh, the Biden administration is resuming funding to UNRWA. Oh, the Biden administration has finally you know, ended the sanctions on the ICC. They're going to be received positively. They're going to be reported positively. He's going to appear some sort of like a centrist or like a, you know, he's going to appear like this sort of fair alternative to Trump, right? Because, you know, he's sort of undoing some of the really, really atrocious decisions that we have seen from Trump on Palestine. But the reality is, is that the essence of the problem, the essence of the injustice continues to be completely unaddressed by the United States, who is responsible for the injustice and the inequalities and the human rights abuses. So, okay, fine. 
he put a more palatable face back on the fascist empire, right? He reminds America of nostalgia because he was the VP to Obama. And that reminds people of a time of prosperity, unless you were living in Syria or Yemen or Afghanistan, you know, Pakistan, any place where Obama dropped thousands of bombs on people, probably more, you know what I mean? We'll get the exact numbers and put them in. But I mean, it's just frustrating because from a logical point of view, if you say I'm committed to X, well, then that should logically mean that you are also committed to all the steps that would be required to achieve X, right? So if the U.S. says, I'm committed to this two-state solution, why isn't the U.S. calling out Israel's ethnic cleansing all over the West Bank and uprooting of Palestinians all over the West Bank? Why isn't Biden calling on Israel to dismantle the illegal settlements? All of these things would be required in order to achieve the two-state solution that they purport to support. But for some reason, whenever we enter the discourse on Palestine in the U.S., we enter a space that defies all logic, where the rules of logic just simply don't apply, where you can just say whatever you want and it doesn't have to be true. And nobody will push you, you know, nobody will push you to, to, to really like, okay, you say you support that. Okay, so what does that mean, really? Nobody will actually hold your statements to any level of scrutiny. And that's what we're trying to do here. The Biden administration is doing this rhetorical technique that most people know as lying. Yeah, right. They tell lies. <laughs> There's a word for that. There's a word for that. But he did put that. You know, like I say, he put that friendly face on fascism. He's a little bit more pinky up of a fascist yes. than Trump was. Trump was a bombastic fascist. That made the liberals uncomfortable. Now right. they've got a friendly, familiar fascist. They're yes. happy back at brunch now that it's opened up again. So that's just a little update from the U.S. landscape. We will continue to monitor all of these developments very closely and provide you with our thoughts and commentary as the situation evolves. So this week, we really wanted to focus on the issue of Palestinian political prisoners. We thought about this subject because there was a story about a Palestinian political prisoner from a couple of weeks ago by the name of Mejd Barbar that touched so many people, basically went viral all over social media. And I think the reason for that is because this story is very representative of the reality of hundreds of thousands of more Palestinian political prisoners. I posted a video of Mejd reuniting with his wife after 20 years of being locked up in Israeli military prison, so feel free to check it out. So on Monday, March 29th, for those of you who have not heard about this story, we heard that Mejd Barbar, a Palestinian husband and father from East Jerusalem, was released from Israeli military prison after 20 years of imprisonment. And the images of him and his family's celebration were shared all around the world. He was first arrested on March 30th, 2001, and sentenced to 20 years in jail on charges of being affiliated with resistance groups and his role in rising up against Israeli colonization. At the time of his arrest, Majd was married with two children, one of whom was only 15 days old. Right after he was released, on March 29, 2021, literally the next day, on March 30th, Israeli occupation forces once again invaded his house, attacking his family and friends with tear gas and rubber-coated metal bullets. The Israeli military injured 12 people and abducted Mejd again 
taking him this time to an interrogation center overnight. The 12 who were injured, they were transferred to a local hospital for medical assistance following the Israeli raid. Some of them had inhaled tear gas, others sustained rubber bullet injuries by the Israeli army. Our residents also of Silwan, which is a neighborhood, a Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem that Israel is actively bulldozing uh, as we speak, uprooting Palestinians from who have lived there for generations and generations. And this is the neighborhood that Majd actually comes from. So this is a person who very logically has a reason to be upset about what's happening in his hometown, right? Why would a person like this be involved in resisting occupation and colonization? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because Israel is bulldozing all of the houses in his neighborhood that belong to Palestinians to replace them with Jews that come from all over the world to steal land. As Mejd was taken away, he declared, we will not be defeated. Mejd was re-released on March 31st essentially the day after he was re-arrested. So a lot of people were asking, well, why would the Israeli army arrest this guy, sentence him to 20 years, release him, re-arrest him the next day, and then re-release him? And I think this is one of the very obscure and violent realities of the Israeli occupation, and that is that when Palestinian political prisoners are released, they're not allowed to celebrate their release. They're not allowed to reunite, to hold gatherings, to, to be joyful, to be happy, to, to have family reunions. This is not something that is allowed. And of course, since Mejd was released, the first thing that him and his family did was to celebrate his release. They held gatherings, they invited people over, you know, this is Again, normal life things that, you know, you want to be around your family, you want to enjoy their company, you haven't seen your wife in 20 years. Of course, you're going to, this, you're going to be waiting for this day. You know, you, you missed your children's entire upbringing. You missed every single aspect of them growing up. You, you basically don't even know them. You met them as adults. Yeah, of course, you're going to celebrate and, you know, be out in the streets and dance and sing and all those things. Well, for the Israeli army, these things are all criminal. And because Mejd and his family and the members of the community in Silwan engaged in these types of activities, like singing and dancing and waving flags, well, those things are criminal. And the Israeli army cracked down on them by rearresting Mejd and then re-releasing him only on the condition that he would not celebrate, that he would not wave flags, that he would not, you know, try to make a fuss out of the fact that he was released. And they find him money. So this is super common. The Israeli army does this all the time. It's a dehumanization of the Palestinian political prisoner from very beginning to the very end. So we don't even acknowledge that he might have a reason, a very logical reason to resist the takeover of his homeland by a foreign occupying force. But even after the foreign occupying force arrests and imprisons for two decades, this individual, that same force then also doesn't acknowledge that that human would logically be happy to be reunited with his family and that it would be the humane thing to do to allow him to live that moment unobstructed. This is what we were talking about in a previous episode where simply Palestinian joy is a threat to the Israeli occupation. Any identifier of happiness, and that's why this podcast is so important because we hold space for Palestinian joy, unobstructed by Zionist infiltration, unobstructed by Zionist attempts to drown us out. 
right? This is a space where Palestinian joy right. can exist. I want to parallel really quickly. There are a, a number of political prisoners in the United States from the Black Liberation Movement. For example, Mamia Abu Jamal, who was arrested Cointel Pro style 40 plus years ago, he's been in jail. Um, with Dr. Matulu Shakur, who has been in prison since 1986, he has received his ninth parole denial in January 2021 after being diagnosed with bone cancer and yet denied compassionate release. Asada Shakur, of course, still lives exiled in Cuba with an active New Jersey and federal arrest warrant out for her. But there are some people who were just released, and I want to shout them out as well. Jalil Muntaquin aka Anthony Bottom, who was arrested at 19 years old, has served 50 years. He, in prison, led educational and mentorship programs for other people in prison and earned numerous educational degrees. And then also Jerry Odinka Dunnigan just got out after 45 years. He's one of the original Black Panthers who served in the breakfast program he reunited with his daughter and his only living sibling. So many of his family members passed while he was in prison, and he was unable to mourn them in person. Also, I think we should give a shout out to the water protector prisoners, the Guantanamo Bay inmates, people fleeing U.S. imperialist aggression in ICE detention centers where they're now being forcibly sterilized, and also the millions of people locked up from the school to prison pipeline swept up in decades of for-profit mass incarceration driven policy. Absolutely. All of that, everything you just said, 100%. I prepared notes today. <laughs> I could tell. No, but I think you're absolutely right. It's important for us to make these connections because Israel is a colonial regime and just like the United States, which, which is also a colonial regime, both have a history, a very long and, and, and demonstrated history of using arrest and detention as a method to repress political organization and to, to, to repress the exercise of freedom of speech, the exercise of freedom of association, the exercise of ideas which are deemed to be a threat to the establishment and to the status quo. And for Israel, the status quo is colonization and land theft. So anybody who's going to resist that is going to be a threat to that status quo. 100%. Israeli citizens are conditioned to uphold that status quo so much so that they don't question it and they become defensive when you start to question it. There are military recruits in the United States born after 9-11 being deployed to occupy land in the Middle East right now. There are guards at Guantanamo Bay who are overseeing prisoners that were captured before they were born. Yeah. This goes deep. Yeah, it's chronic. It's a decades-long situation. I mean, Guantanamo, Obama said he was going to close Guantanamo. Remember that? That was one of his sure. campaign promises. Sure. Right? It's 2021. Like, we're in a situation, okay, we've seen Trump, now we're on Biden. Guantanamo is still open. It's one of those you know. two-state solution situations where yeah, they knew those, we support closing Guantanamo. We, we support, always you know, knew. We're always going to support closing Guantanamo. Yes, forever. and we'll always support a two-state solution. Even though we just yeah. did a retrofit that cost millions of dollars on Guantanamo Bay, it's going to close. We support closing it in any yeah. event. Yeah, we do support the yeah. idea of closing it. 
Yeah, but did you, so I don't know if you saw the video of Medjd reuniting with his sure, wife, but I think for me, the thing that was so touching was just the humanity, the love, the romance, the relationship yes. goals. Like how many of us are going to wait 20 years for a man? Like, you know what I mean? There was so much love when she saw him. She she basically got dressed as if it was her wedding night. Essentially, she was wearing the most beautiful Palestinian thobe with traditional Palestinian embroidery. These dresses take hundreds of hours to make. They are all done by hand. They are super, super intricate designs. And they are a manifestation of Palestinian culture, the, the deep rootedness of Palestinian culture and the tradition of embroidery, which is passed down generation after generation. His wife looked absolutely stunning. Yeah, shout and out Palestinian women, some like so loyal and dedicated, some of the most inspiring revolutionaries I've ever encountered. Absolutely. I mean, look at this, 20 years her husband was taken from her. No occupation, no colonizer, no illegal military is going to crush her spirit, much less the spirit of all the political prisoners, much less the spirit of all the Palestinian people. So if you can't crush the individual, you certainly will not crush the nation. And this is, this is what we as Palestinians are continuing to resist no matter where we are in the world today. So I just wanted to really highlight their story and their relationship. If you haven't seen the video, please go check it out. But we also wanted to use today as an opportunity to discuss this phenomenon of political prisoners more broadly. Since 1967, Israel has arrested over 800,000 Palestinians and held them in military prisons. That being said, 40% of the entire Palestinian male population of the occupied territories, the West Bank and Gaza, have suffered some form of detention since 1967, whether it be imprisonment, like the 800,000 we just spoke about, or being detained without charge. So that, that does not actually figure into the 800,000 number that I just gave you. So 800,000 Palestinian have been held in military prisons. Those are ones that are actually being imprisoned with a charge. But then the number of Palestinians that have been detained is much greater than that, reaching 40% of the male population in the West Bank and Gaza because Israel has various ways that it can detain Palestinians and they don't all include being put through a military trial and being convicted of a military crime, right? Right. So this is an insane figure. Almost one in two Palestinian men in the West Bank and Gaza have been held in some way by Israel, whether imprisonment or detention of some other kind. So to keep the parallels alive, one in four Black men have been imprisoned in the United States. Yes. So today there's currently around 5,000 Palestinian political prisoners being unjustly held by Israel. This includes women and children. Israel jails Palestinian children. Like I need, if, if you don't remember anything from this episode, just remember that Israel jails children of another people and keeps them in military prison. And they can be very young, as young as like six or seven. So much so, so, so grotesque is this phenomenon that a US Congresswoman by the name of Betty McCollum introduced a bill in Congress condemning Israel's practice of jailing Palestinian children. You know it's bad if a U.S. congressperson's speaking out about it. Name Betty. Right. You know what I mean? But go ahead, Betty. 
Shouts to her. Shout out to her. I mean, she's she's actually great. She, this is not the first time that she has sponsored a bill or spoken out about Israel's human rights abuses against Palestinians. I don't think her bill was ever passed, but she did sponsor it. It's not surprising that the bill didn't do much movement. <laughs> But Capitol you think Hill. that that would be you think that would be like the one thing that isn't controversial, right? I don't know. Because we, like we put kids in cages in this country, what why wouldn't we do it? Why wouldn't we pay someone else to do it in another country? For sure, but it's super illegal. It violates numerous treaties. You know how the US government is, international law schmitter schma. <laughs> right. It's true. It's That's so actually good. an official quote from our buddy Abe Lincoln, I believe. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a joke. Don't. <laughs> I don't want you to have to source that. <laughs> yeah, so last month she actually came out and said using Israeli soldiers to capture little boys who were reportedly gathering wild vegetables in occupied Palestinian land is wrong. So she spoke out about the, the kids who were arrested by Israel for picking flowers and, and vegetables. Thanks, Betty. We really appreciate you. Hey. You think, it, you think it would be obvious that this kind of stuff sucks, but there's literally only one person speaking out. So. And shouts to the rest of Congress. Yeah. Who watches children getting detained for picking flowers and says, you know what? I like money. I almost can't find anything about her bill anymore. Like, it seems like it's like old news. Uh, they do a good job of scrubbing the internet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like getting like Israel loves gays instead as a result. What's going on here? McCollum put forward a bill shedding light on Israel's imprisonment of Palestinian children and says the imprisonment of those children lacks basic and fundamental guarantees of due process. The lady's got a point. Sounds nice. The bill introduced last year has been sitting in the House Foreign Affairs Committee and has picked up 24 co-sponsors. All right. How many people are in Congress? More than 24, but I actually thought, you know, it's like 400, it was be less. it's like 435, right? Yeah. <laughs> A bill that every single person in Congress should be sponsoring, should be signing on to. I mean, it's just so painfully obvious. You shouldn't be excited about Israel arresting children. Here's I mean, the that's thing. just not good. Look, it's not a good look for you. They super don't care about caging kids because we are experiencing the lowest levels of immigration from Mexico into the United States right now in the past 45 years. And yet private immigration detention centers are booming, a highly protected yeah. industry. The U.S. government has promised to supply enough people to keep 36,000 beds in detention centers. That means that they're just grabbing folks for the purposes of occupying beds because it's a for-profit industry. So it's probably the same thing in Israel where they have private prisons and it's monetized. There's an incentive in addition to the occupation, which they're brutally enforcing. Yeah, it's a mess. So I've just mentioned there's currently around 5,000 Palestinian political prisoners being unjustly held by Israel, including women and children. 
they are convicted, if at all, since they can be imprisoned without conviction, without due process, or any of the procedural or substantive safeguards typical in a democratic society to ensure human rights. Israeli military courts have essentially a 99% conviction rate of Palestinians. And the crimes that Palestinians are convicted of include protesting, organizing, throwing stones, suspected activism, or nothing at all. Hey, they're pretty good then. You know what I mean? If, if that's their <laughs> conviction rate, that's not bad. That's an A plus <laughs> at oppression. A plus at oppression, exactly. Now, the history of this Palestinian imprisonment for resistance to colonization is not new. Between 1936 and 1939, when Palestinians were resisting British colonization of Palestine, 10% of the adult male population in Palestine was either exiled, imprisoned, or killed. This is a piece of history that we don't often hear about because the clock often starts running in 1948 when Zionist gangs following the killing of thousands of Palestinians, the destruction of over 500 villages, the uprooting of 80% of the Palestinian population declare themselves to be the state of Israel on our land. But if we go back even further, we'll see that Palestinians were resisting colonization since its inception on the land of Palestine. Even before Zionist colonization, there was this British colonization of Palestine, which Palestinians also resisted as well as anti-Zionist Jews. Yes. We can also look to the first Intifada in the 1980s. Israel at that time arrested thousands of Palestinians for their political activities. And again, these included offenses such as organizing, participating in protests, taking part in assemblies or vigils, waving flags or other political symbols, printing or distributing political material. I mean, it's crazy because all of these things are supposed to be essential freedoms in democratic societies, but yet they are outlawed for those trying to exercise what should be protected freedoms in a democratic society. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Hey, in a democratic society, do you beat up a congressperson for protesting with marginalized groups? Yeah, that happened, it, right? That happened recently to a member of Knesset. Right beaten in the streets by Israeli police. Hey, in a democratic society that respects Judaism, do you, a settler colonialist, attack a rabbi in the streets with a stick? Do you do that? Because that happened also. It's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, it, they're, it's so hard to excuse any of this but like sometimes you'll hear something and you'll just be like that just is so absurd that your brain can't even handle it right yeah so, they beat a rabbi with sticks in the street the settlers did the settlers yeah yeah because they'll say the rabbi was an anti-semite what part of the torah is that i'd like to know yeah which which is that? Which page? I mean, look, I mean, what maybe I've got an outdated version, you know, a little different. Y'all remixed it. I'm not sure. Man, beating a beating a rabbi just doesn't seem like it would jive with the religion. For sure. Yeah. So while Palestinian political prisoners come from all over Palestine, the vast majority in at least the last several decades since 1967 have been coming from the Israeli occupied West Bank. And that is because the military presence 
in the West Bank is the greatest as compared to inside of 48 or in Gaza. Palestinians can be arrested by the Israeli military at any time. They can be taken from their schools, their homes, their workplaces, at checkpoints, at demonstrations, at a restaurant, wherever. I mean, it doesn't really matter. The Israeli army can show up at any point, any place. They don't have to have a warrant. They just show up and they just kidnap whoever they want. There are tons of videos online of vans just slowly rolling around and then people hop out and grab somebody bring them, drag them back into the van. And that also happens in the U.S. too. There's a police gang called the Jump Out Boys. They're known for rolling around in a van, jumping out, grabbing people, and then taking them back to the station and torturing them. That's insane. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. The Jump Out Boys. Yep. And that's what it's like. They got a number of units like that in the West Bank. They got a bunch of jump out boys over there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can definitely look up all of this stuff on YouTube. There's so, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of videos of Israeli military arresting Palestinians, arresting Palestinian children. These arrests usually include physical abuse of the child. So you can see very clearly people are filming Israeli soldiers, dozens of them beating up on a child as they're trying to take him and arrest him. They will damage personal property. So if they enter your home, they'll usually just like turn, you know, upside down, absolutely everything in the house, destroy everything, pull out all the drawers, you know, flip everything upside down. That's just very common of of these military raids. In addition to physical abuse of uh, the person who was kidnapped or the child who was kidnapped, these detainees are blindfolded, handcuffed, loaded into these military vehicles, All you have to do is Google blindfolded Palestinian. You'll have a bevy of options to choose from. Yes. You will see thousands of pictures. And every time you'll see one or more U.S. funded Israeli soldiers looking like a robo soldier, right? With all their equipment and everything, you know, layers and layers thick, manhandling a young child who's got, who's generally got some sort of, you know, a blindfold on um, being taken away by these, you know, soldiers. You, I mean, this is an image that has been repeated over and over and over. It's the, it's, it's the modus operandi of the Israeli military. This is exactly what they do every time they arrest Palestinian children. I saw the movie The Present. Shout out yes. The Present. It was fantastic. Just won a BAFTA. Congratulations. Yeah, that was an incredible film. I also saw it as well. Congratulations to Farah Nabulsi and the entire team that uh, brought us The Present. It was absolutely touching and there's a scene in the present where he's passing through the checkpoint. He yeah. has a, the soldier pulls a gun on him and cocks it. And that exact same situation played out in a real life video that I watched literally the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Also fun fact on the present, I was watching some of the interviews with uh, some of the people that were involved in the film and in one of the interviews, you actually find out that the scene where the father is actually going through the military checkpoint at the very beginning, where he's being, you know, sort of shuffled through like cattle with like hundreds of other Palestinian men. This was a scene that took place at an actual checkpoint. They filmed it 
without the Israeli soldiers' awareness using, you know, incognito cameras. And he actually went through the actual line. So the people that you see in that shot are real Palestinians living their lives in the moment. This was, these are not actors. This was not a staged, you know, setup of, of what a military checkpoint would look like. This was an actual Israeli military checkpoint on occupied land that they went through in order to capture the reality of the situation that millions of Palestinians find themselves living every day. So props to them for, for, for actually getting that shot because it is the truth. It is not a recreation. It is not an exaggeration. It is not an interpretation, okay? It's the truth shot by a camera in real time. Everyone needs to go see this movie if they haven't already seen it. It was absolutely stunning. It was, you know, it's a short film, but I, I told Farah, I said, how can a movie that is so short make you feel so much? And it has so many layers. There's so many, so many layers that take place in this movie. We could, you know, we could, I hope we have a full episode just about the present and we maybe we can even get ask her to, Farah get to come on. on here. Yeah. yeah. It was such a fantastic movie. It brought me to tears. It was so inspiring and authentic. In yeah. I mean that not in the way that white women talk about tacos. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I feel like I've said that once though. Do I I mean I'm white, so yeah, I, yeah. I mean you're white passing. I, I'm white passing. As yeah. soon as you start speaking Arabic, people are like, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's very common for Israeli soldiers to conduct raids actually, to pick up several children at once. This is especially common in the villages that have demonstrations against the Israeli apartheid wall. So for those of you who don't know, Israel constructed a wall that cuts up all of the land of the West Bank and separates Palestinian families either from their neighbors or Palestinian families from their land. So the wall essentially cuts through bits of land that are owned by the same person. So the person who finds himself on one side of the wall will then be separated from his land and that land gets incorporated into Israel. It's used to build a settlement, whatever. And essentially land theft has taken place via the construction of this wall. Really quick, there's yeah. a family I saw that is living basically in between the walls. So they constructed walls fully around this person's house to the point where they are the only house in there and they just have walls on both sides. Yeah, there's some very absurd manifestations of it when you look at like the way that it snakes through the West Bank. It's not at all on the Green Line, which was, you know, sort of the internationally recognized. Uh, oh, wait, border. so you mean that, that they're stealing land? They're stealing more than they initially stole. Wow. Yes, that, wow. that is what I'm saying. They stole 78% way back when. Now they're stealing more and more of the remaining 22%. And mm. the U.S. still says it supports the two states. Many, many Palestinian families have lost land due to the construction of this wall. This wall, of course, was declared illegal by the International Court of Justice. And Israel never took it down. Sort of like Israel's Christmas decorations. They're just like, we're going to exactly. leave it up forever. And then everyone's like, it's not Christmas anymore. You have to take it down. Plus, it's violating people's rights. And they're like, no, nah, I think we're good. Plus, Jesus was actually born here. So, yeah.
So I have friends in the village of Bilain, for example. This is a village in the West Bank that has organized weekly nonviolent protests at the apartheid wall, which cuts their village in half, and it separates them from their farmland. And their farmland is being used now to uh, build illegal settlements, and they have obviously not been compensated for the theft of their land, and they protest every week, every Friday at the wall. Those protests are met with violence by the Israeli army, and they continue to protest anyway. And what ends up happening is that the, the, the youth of the village are often picked up in raids by the Israeli military. They come at the, in the middle of the night when everybody is asleep, you know, they knock on all the doors, they break the doors down, they'll pick up a kid from his bed and they'll chuck him into a military vehicle. They'll keep him for however long they decide to keep him. And then they'll charge his family, you know, some fines to, to have their child released. The families will have to pay into this system and raise money in order to have their kids released. And then, you know, the whole situation repeats itself. Sometimes the kids are kept charged and processed and they end up, you know, being tortured in prison for years and years. Sometimes it's just kind of like, oh, well, let's just pick them up. We'll keep them for a few days. We'll get them to sign a confession in Hebrew, and you know, that he doesn't understand without the presence of a lawyer, super illegal, all of it. We'll deny him access to lawyers. We'll deny him access to his family. And maybe we'll release him whenever we feel like it, whenever we get bored of him, whenever we get tired of him. And then, you know, the process will repeat itself over and over again. The same child may be picked up numerous times because they'll say, oh, you were throwing rocks. Oh, you were at the protest. Oh, you held a flag. You know, things like this. Just democratic things. Yeah, just really democratic things. But the situation in Bilain is not unique. Almost every city in the West Bank that encounters the apartheid wall in some way has held similar demonstrations and has similarly had their children often picked up in nighttime raids by the Israeli military. As I've mentioned, prisoners are tortured, there's commonly beatings, prisoners are tied in stress positions, and this includes children. They may be interrogated for days on end, deprived of sleep and other forms of sensory deprivation, placed in isolation or solitary confinement. Israel places children who throw stones in solitary confinement. Obviously, I don't have to tell you that this is super illegal, and I don't have to tell you the impact that this will have on a young child. I think all of that goes without saying. And many detainees have died in Israeli custody as a result of torture. When Palestinians are killed, Israel doesn't even release the bodies. They keep the bodies as a form of collective punishment to the families and the communities. This is a very common practice that Israel engages in and all of it is illegal. And I just get so exhausted with saying it's all illegal, it's all illegal because it is all legal, but I, just, I have to say it, but it almost doesn't even matter, right? Yeah, Ahmed Arakat, his family has been unable to bury him because the terrorists, the Israeli terrorists collected his body after murdering him and have held it hostage. My friend Heba Jamal says that even Palestinian bodies are politicized after the fact. Absolutely. So every year, Israel arrests almost a 1,000 Palestinian youth, some of them not even yet 13. According to a report by Save the Children from 2020, in the last 20 years, an estimated 10,000 Palestinian children have been held by the Israeli military detention system in one way or another. And the most common charge brought against children is stone throwing, for which the maximum sentence is 20 years. And I only have one question about this. Israel is the only nuclear power in the Middle East. In what planet 
does a country which is armed with literal nukes need to impose a 20-year prison sentence on children who throw rocks? Meanwhile, they're extrajudicially assassinating scientists in Iran, generals, anywhere they want. They can touch anyone all over the world, but as soon as somebody throws a rock from a demolished house at them, now you're a terrorist. Right. Hey, this is stop. Zion- Zionist logic. Zionist logic. Stop demolishing the houses and they won't have rocks to throw. You feel me? Bingo. And only in Zionist logic is this an appropriate course of action. But for the rest of the world, for the rest of humanity, this is unacceptable. And I think anybody with a conscience has to feel that this is unacceptable. Because imagine yourself in the same situation. You're living in your house, and one day somebody comes by with a bulldozer and bulldozes it. Now you find yourself in a pile of rubble. You pick up a rock and you throw it at the guy who demolished your house. You throw it at the guy who jailed your sibling. You throw it at the guy who killed your parent. You throw it at the guy who um, has made half of your family refugees and you, you've been separated from them. They're in exile. You haven't even met them. You throw it at the guy who prevents you from going to Jerusalem and praying in your mosque. You throw it at the guy who made you know your grandparents uh, essentially neck bus survivors who survived a catastrophe. If they did or if they didn't, they were killed off by it, right? And now you are facing a 20-year sentence as a child because you threw that rock. But nobody is asking questions about why on earth you threw a rock in the, in the first place, right? And the ICC is not even allowed to look into it or they're anti-Semitic. Right. This is Zionist logic. But we continue to see the effects of it today. How they define the parameters of what you're allowed to speak about, what you're not allowed to speak about. You're only allowed to say, well, they threw stones. But, but what you can't ask is why are they throwing stones? Why are they so upset? Maybe there's something going on here. Yeah, and why aren't there more professional pitchers? Right. You know what I mean? Because we know they've got an arm. So uh, there's got to be something stopping their opportunities. But for the record, Israel's arrest and detention of Palestinian children violates numerous international conventions and treaties that are designed to protect the rights of children, including, but not limited to, the Fourth Geneva Convention, the International Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and there are so many more that I could cite to, but... I, for one, am totally shocked that a place that is also a safe haven for pedophiles discriminates against Palestinian children. I could not see that coming. You know what I mean? A place that is a literal safe haven for pedophiles where the intelligence apparatus is likely connected to sex trafficking. Shouts out Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell. They would mistreat Palestinians. That is shocking to me. Yeah. Sounds like, yeah, I'm floored, right? And by the way, that'll be easy to source. You know what I mean? No worries. Yeah, it's later. It's not hard <laughs> to find an article about how both of these people tried to hide in Israel for many years. And it's... how her father was a Mossad agent. Oh, yeah, that part, too. So, look, we can talk day and night about the Palestinians who have been arrested in the last some hundred years, whether by the British or Zionist colonizers. Uh, we could talk about Israel's treatment of Palestinian children who it arrests and imprisons. And we could talk about the conditions uh, more broadly 
that Palestinians are being kept in in Israeli military prisons. But I also wanted us to zoom out a little bit and look at the entire system and structure of occupation itself as a carceral system. Because I think that there's even a broader prison paradigm here that we can uh, comment about. So first and foremost, if you look at Gaza itself, Gaza is a prison. Gaza is a prison where 2 million people are being caged right now. And the reason for that is because Israel doesn't let anyone leave or anything come in. Nobody can leave. Nobody can come in. Movement to and from Gaza is almost impossible. It's almost exclusively bottlenecked at the Egypt crossing, the Rafah border, where they've just opened it quite recently. And it takes days to get across because so many people are trying to get out. Right. And you have to have permission. You have to have permission from Israel. You have to have permission from Egypt. You have to have a very special case. You cannot freely move in and out of Gaza. It's very, very, very difficult. And even if you do have a reason, like you need to seek medical care abroad because you have a life-threatening illness that needs treatment that you can't get treatment for in Gaza because Israel has totally obliterated the medical system in Gaza and all of healthcare, well, then even then you're not certain to be able to leave Gaza, right? So Gaza itself is a prison. Really quickly, I'm yeah. reminded of the, I think, 90 plus year old woman a couple years ago who died at the Rafa crossing because she had a medical emergency, but wasn't able to get medical attention in time. But beyond Gaza, the West Bank also serves as a cage to millions of Palestinians, but in a different way. We've talked about how Israel has littered illegal settlements throughout the West Bank in order to separate, isolate, and break down Palestinian communities. The landscape of the West Bank is littered with walls, fences, roadblocks, crossing points, checkpoints, a segregated road network, a highly sophisticated system for the regulation of Palestinian movement, and a vast prison structure. This entire system has been referred to by the Israeli journalist Amira Haas as, quote, a matrix of control for Palestinians, of course. Central to Israel's restrictive regime vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians are a litany of other practices which restrict people's rights in the way that a carceral system would. This includes home demolitions, exile, collective punishment, which are, of course, all internationally outlawed. And these practices, as noted by Rashid Khalidi, come straight from the British playbook. Israel's policies and practices are directly rooted in Britain's lengthy experience of keeping the natives in line in India, Ireland, Egypt, sub-Saharan Africa, and much of the rest of the world. So uh, much of these practices come directly from the former colonizers of Palestine, the British. And it also relies on conscription, right? To the point where if you refuse to serve in the army, you will go to jail. For example, Halal Rabin recently served roughly three months in jail, faced multiple military tribunals where they grilled her, asked her about her opinions on Iran, you know? And she was quoted as saying, you grow up and you know you'll become a soldier. You'll shut up and do your work. I can say I'm crazy and lie, but she said, I'm not crazy. The situation here is crazy. And there are also 60 teenagers who refused to serve in the IDF. They wrote a letter talking about how they want to take responsibility. They signed a public letter objecting to military service over Israel's policies of apartheid, neoliberalism, and the denial of the Nekba. 
I don't have the exact figures on the number of Israeli youth every year that decide that they will refuse to serve in the Israeli military, but I will look them up and provide them on our website. Yeah, it's a small but growing faction of Israeli youth who are understanding the unsustainability of continued oppression. And in 2002, the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that it was possible to exempt someone for pacifism, but not for what it called, quote, selective conscientious objection in a precedent-setting case of eight officers who were specifically refusing to serve in the occupied territories. So basically what they're saying is, if you like peace across the board, that's fine. But if you have issues with the occupation and colonization of Palestinians, you're going straight to jail, bucko. Zionist logic. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. So you can like peace generally right? You, you can be a pacifist in general, vague, sort of amorphous terms. But right? if you apply that philosophy to your lived experience, well, enjoy prison, fam. <laughs> yeah. There was that tweet, remember, like from uh, a Taylor Swift fan account? Yes, of course. It's the most iconic was- tweet to ever most- be tweeted. She was off the app for like a year or something, and she wrote a handwritten note letting people know that she's in jail for refusing to serve in the Israeli military. And she was just so casual about it. She was like, guys, I'll be back. I'll be back in a little bit. You know what I mean? She she actually released updates handwritten so that Taylor Swift fan account could continue to post. And that's the type of dedication that I respect. For sure. Not just refusing to serve in the IDF, which is already pretty baller, but then maintaining your duties to your Taylor Swift fan account? Come on. That's the type of loyalty the IDF wishes they had. Yes. Shout out to that girl. Shout out to Taylor Swift. That's a Palestinian level of resistance. (laughs) Yes. She's an honorary. I don't even know if I have the juice to crown her, but I feel like she should be. Like, I want to nominate her at the very least. Yeah, I feel like you can make nominations. I don't know if you, I don't think you can crown. I mean, that's, that's fair. a little much. Yeah, that's fair. But you can nominate. We'll take it into consideration, you know? Thank you. We'll have a look at, the, at Consider your Consider it at the next meeting. <laughs> For sure. They were like, where, where did you go? She's like, oh, lol, I was just in prison because I didn't serve in the IDF, lol. Like... Yeah, that was her tweet. Love her. Yeah, refuseniks are a minority in Israel, but we obviously support them and encourage them. And we realize also the extent to which these people become completely ostracized and excluded from society. Because if you want to stay in Israel, and a lot of these people end up leaving completely, which is great. But if you want to stay in Israel, you have to serve in the army because if you don't serve in the army, you're not going to be able to work because serving in the army is a prerequisite to existing in the public space. So you won't be able to get certain jobs. I mean, just the the notion of, you know, respect and family and community and, oh, did you hear so-and-so son refused to serve in the army? You know what I mean? There's not a, a patriot, there's a... I've seen. <laughs> yeah. 
And by the way, we'll like we'll get a bunch of pedants who are like, you can also do selective service. You don't have to serve in your army. But it's like you're also still upholding the apartheid system, even in your selective service. You are serving right. a fundamentally corrupted institution. And so you're still a part of it. Exactly why the that small but consistent number of dissenters that say, no, we're not going to serve because this situation is abnormal and this is not how this is nothing I want to be a part of this is exactly why they say no right this is exactly why it's not enough of an option for them to just say oh well we'll just ask to be placed somewhere else we'll just we'll just ask not to be actually at the checkpoint we'll be in the control room you know we'll just monitor Palestinians online activity we won't actually shoot at them yeah exactly that's literally how they justify it to themselves. They say, I didn't hold a gun. I never hurt anyone. I helped Palestinians. I hear that ever. so I hear that so frequently from these weirdo IDFers. Yeah. They help Palestinians. You must be the only motherfucker in the IDF helping Palestinians. I have never seen it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm willing to say that. You know, I, I, I don't like to speak on behalf of Palestinians because obviously we're not a homogenous group and we are, you know, we all have our own opinions and beliefs and lived experiences. But in this case, I am willing to make an exception and say, we don't need your help at all. No Palestinian is happy to have the help of an Israeli soldier for whatever situation they are in. Yeah. Because you're occupying us. You know what I mean? So like, if you get me a bottle of water, but you demolish my home and you post that you've, you know, given me a bottle of water. Cause, and, and that example is a real example. Cause there are literally propaganda photos of the Israeli army, like giving water to an old Palestinian who's like, you know, thirsty. And it's just like, what is this? What am I even looking at? Yeah. Maybe what? don't poison yeah. the water supply and you won't have to hand out bottles of water. Yeah, you think? 97% of the water in Gaza is not fit for human consumption, which means they are literally poisoning people slowly. That's murder by design, by policy. That is violence by law. Yep. And then they'll hand out bottles snap a quick one, you know, post it on TikTok or whatever. (laughs) And it's Arrowhead, like you disgust me. You know what I mean? Get me a Fiji. Oh, it's like a Dasani. Ew. I think they're all the same. No, it tastes better though. Fiji is weird. They're all the same and they all privatize natural resources that should be for free. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, they're all stealing water from India. So as a further extension of this entire carceral system, we all remember in the mid nineties when the Oslo system created more labels. You have areas A, B and C of the West Bank whereby Israel retains absolute control of most of the West Bank and gives a little bit of control to the Palestinian Authority which serves as its essentially security coordinator in this instance. So again, many systems of control, of restriction of movement, of restriction of where you can live, or restriction of what you can do, all added to one another end up creating an entire system which is carceral in nature. 
And many of us might actually remember a couple of years ago when the security company G4S actually decided to fully divest from Israel. And this was following the divestment by several major uh, entities in the United States, like the United Methodist Church, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, and the UK's largest trade union from divesting or calling for divestment from the company, essentially singling it out for the services that it provides by its systems and equipment in the incarceration and control of Palestinians. G4S was actually involved in providing security and screening equipment at Israeli military checkpoints, as well as at numerous prisons and at Israeli police stations as well. The campaign to stop G4S has been successful in pressuring the company to abandon its deals with the Israeli prison service. In December 2016, and under BDS campaign pressure, G4S sold its Israeli subsidiary to the Israeli equity fund, FIMI. So they cashed out. Well, for what it's worth, right? It's still happening. It's just not happening. They're not continuing to profit from that technology that exactly. they already sold. To wrap up, I think we need to always ask ourselves the big questions. Why do Israeli military prisons exist? Why are stone throwers called terrorists? Why do Palestinians need to throw stones at all? Calling resistance fighters terrorists is, of course, a standard colonial trope right? Palestinians are not the first people fighting for their liberation who have been called terrorists in the process of doing so. It's worth going back to another colonial situation, that of South Africa under the apartheid regime, to examine how that played out over time. For white-ruled Pretoria and for the Reagan administration that strongly supported it on Cold War grounds, the African National Congress and its leader Nelson Mandela were simply terrorists. Until... Decades later, when it became absolutely impossible to continue the status quo, everybody embraced him as, you know, being a good guy all along. The folks who called Mandela a terrorist, the folks who called MLK Jr. a terrorist, they are now all memorializing them online, gushing like they were best friends. Mark my words, there's going to come a time when you are going to wish that you stood up for Palestinian rights because it's going to become absolutely obvious on such a public level that the situation that Palestinians have been living for the last 70 some years is so inhumane and unjust that you are going to wish that this entire time you stood up for Palestinian rights. Your grandkids are going to ask you, oh, were you fighting? Were you part of the fight for Palestinian rights? You know, because it's the, it's the human rights issue of our time. You know, look at all these great human rights advocates and, and leaders. Mandela is in jail right now, right? Is being held in an Israeli military prison. And that's not a threat. That's a promise. It's not a threat. It's just a reality. We're on the right side of history, but we're, we're doing it at an unpopular time. It's been an unpopular time for Palestine for the last 70 years, but at some point it is going to become popular to support Palestinian rights when it becomes painfully obvious to everybody in the world what's been happening for the last 70 years. And when everybody realizes what's been happening, then they're all going to rush to support Palestinian human rights and pretend like they've been here all along. But if you're not here when we need you, then what good are you anyway? 
that's what's going to happen. Like it's going to become the situation that everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, yeah, I supported, I support Palestinian rights. I, I was in favor of a solution for them the whole time. But the, the, where is the integrity? Where is your willingness to step out and depart from the mainstream narrative and call out Israel, call out the United States for their creation and support for the last settler colony in this world. We need you now, not in decades from now when it's gonna be popular to support Palestinians. Like Drake said, you wasn't with me shooting in the gym. Exactly. You know? Done. We end on that. <laughs> Thank y'all so much for listening to another episode of the Palestine Pod, palestinepod.com. Palestinepod at gmail.com. Send us your comments. Don't send us your complaints. We'll delete them. And uh, let us know what's on your mind. We'd love to hear from you. Go ahead and like, subscribe, comment. We so appreciate y'all. And we will see you on the next episode. It's the Palestine Pod. Palestine Pod. Palestine Pod. Slow down your relax. Palestine Pod. Palestine Pod. Expand your mind. Palestine Pod. All right, ready? Ready when you are. Give me a clap. I can't clap because I've got one hand on this mic. Yeah, it was a joke. Can I do that? It was, it was a joke. <laughs> um, that's, no, that's, he doesn't want to do it. That's tough. Do it. The sound is tough. I can already tell. <laughs> oh. oh, He's really struggling with the sound right now. Maybe if I hold the microphone Did he just like say, I'm not do. a real podcaster? It sounds like you yeah, guys are recording it. from a runway. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> How dare you? He's saying, Fucking 747 ass.